The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we discuss things that explode, dangerous technologies. That's why we call it We're All Going to Die Radio. Um, uh, Of course, I'm here with my... I'm David Rothko, the co-host, and I'm here with my co-host, John Wolfstall. How are you doing today, John? I'm I'm good, David. I I think the end may not be nigh, but it's hard to tell. I don't know. Let's you know wait until the end of this podcast. You may change your view. Uh, we are joined today by Paul Shari, who is executive vice president and director of studies at CNAS. His most recent book is for Battlegrounds: Power in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Uh, we've been hoping to have this conversation since we started this podcast. Um, these issues are at the forefront of our mind. Uh, I do want to say that we had invited a couple of experts um, uh, to join the panel who were women because we do try to have um, gender balance on our panels. And uh, at the last minute, one of them couldn't join. And we're not disappointed to have you here, Paul. Uh, But uh, I do want to make sure that everybody knows we do make that effort each and every week. Um, But let's start. And John, why don't you start with the first question for Paul? Sure, David. And and thanks uh, for kicking off. Great to see you as always. Paul, thanks for joining us. Because this is about the end of the world, I always like to try to start with something a little lighter than, um, okay, we're all going to die and exactly when. So it, it, the, the quote from Zoolander keeps popping in my head, like AI, oh, it's so hot right now, right? I mean, you must feel like there aren't enough hours in the day over the last, I don't know, year or plus, because AI has become so pervasive in the public discourse. It changes everything. It's going to be, you know, everywhere. Um, And I'm just sort of curious, do you think that the discussion about artificial intelligence and all the other associated technologies, like, are, is that overblown? Or are we in fact getting it right that this is a huge change in the course 
of human history and we have a window to get it right and we better do so. Like, I'm just wondering where you come down on that construct. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first of all, thank you, David and John, for having me. Really excited uh, to be here. And I think, you know, look, it's not going to be a surprise given what I've worked out of. I spent five years, you know, working on um, ultimately uh, all of the research that led to this book for Battlegrounds. Um, so I think AI is a pretty big deal. And, um, and you know, I'm coming from a certain perspective, but I'm not surprised by the level of energy here. In fact, I've been surprised the last couple of years that I've thought to myself, like, why aren't more people paying attention? This is a big deal. And I think what's, you know, it's, it's easy to look at what companies are saying and say, that's overhyped. And are there products that are overhyped? Sure, there's hype. You know, there's companies trying to hype up what they're doing and slap the AI label on things that in some cases, maybe a couple of years ago, we would call that big data. You know, but now it's AI and that's going to that's gonna get some attention. Is there a lot of investment in this space? Yeah, absolutely. But I think when you look at it, the core, what's happened, particularly in the last year in the field of AI, the actual technological breakthrough is incredible. And what we've done is we've gone from narrow AI systems that could solve a particular task, like a chess playing AI or an AI that can recognize faces to more general purpose AI systems, these large language models like ChatGPT, they can do a whole wide range of tasks. They can write poetry, they can write an essay, they can do math, um, they can play chess. These systems have limitations, um, you know, but a lot of technology early on is not that great. I think we're going to see progress working on some of the kinks, but the fundamental breakthrough is, I think, actually cannot be overstated, I think is huge. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because I'm in the middle of writing a book about AI too, and I don't want you to have been the one that caught the wave, and I not to <laughs> catch the wave. Uh, my book, I think, I'm going to call Five Battlegrounds. No, Ooh, no, I'm I like it. Yeah, no, I just thought I would want it, but I'm I'm not. It doesn't. It doesn't even focus on this aspect of it, <laughs> and I think that's part of the what makes AI interesting. It, it changes. As John just said, everything changes what a job is. It changes um, how many jobs are done. It has economic implications. It has political implications. It's got implications for how intelligence is conducted. It has implications for how disinformation is spread and so on and so on. Um, and I think one of the things that's important about your book is that you have focused on a, a particular area of this that... Um, is front of mind for a lot of people. Um, you can tell it's front of mind because the Department of Defense just two weeks ago announced that it was going to, um, you know, focus particularly uh, intensely on autonomous weapons platforms. Um, um, but a lot of the people I talk about in the Defense Department, and this gets me to, you know, the question John was trying to avoid. They spend an awful lot of their time talking about a singularity. You know, they 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 talk about the event where the you know AGI gets to the point that it realizes that people are not really helping it so much. It's learned more than they know, and that people are actually the impediment and sh and need to be done with. And um, you know, I I think we should start right at the end. You know. What do you what do you think of this obsession of some people 
with end of the world scenarios for AGI? Or can we blame it on the mindset of people like John and all they brought to us <laughs> from the nuclear world? And they just realize no one's going to pay attention unless it's got even greater, more worrisome consequences than nukes. Well, that's, an, I think, a remarkable shift also in the public conversation about AI, where now we're hearing people talking seriously about concerns about existential risk, about some kind of AI catastrophe that could literally, people are saying, literally wipe out all of humanity. That's what people are worried about. Now, 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 we're, now we're talking. How do you feel, John? Right. Well, yeah. I, I, much better now. Like, I'm relevant again. Yeah. <laughs> now we're in the sweet spot. Yeah, yeah exactly. Go ahead. And I think it's that's a huge shift because there there have been people concerned about this for several years now, but it's been a, a pretty small community. And so that going mainstream is a really big shift. My observation has been that it's a, it's a really polarizing topic. But what I've observed is that people seem to have this really instinctive gut reaction in either one of two ways. Either people are like, uh, yeah, like why are more people worried? That sounds like a terrible idea to build these AIs. Or, like, what are you talking about? That's nonsense in science fiction. I think what I would suggest is that, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that the goal of the field of artificial intelligence is to create machines that are as capable or not more capable than humans. Now, you can say that's not possible or that's not going to happen or not in our lifetimes. I think actually look at the state of the art today. That's not that far off. Especially depending on the human, right? For some humans, like well, that's easy. Yeah, <laughs> that depends on the person, right? Maybe maybe we should start with AI that does what the House Judiciary Committee does, because that sets the bar worried. extremely low. I was I'm more worried about AI generated podcasts, David. That's going to really put you out of business. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm all I'm all for that. Frankly, go, go, sorry, Paul. Sorry, sorry Paul. <laughs> no, I mean. I mean, I think there's a lot of people looking at some of the state-of-the-art systems and kind of wondering, like, is AI coming after my job? Um, you know, there were a couple of years ago, I think there was this expectation that it was going to be physical labor, low-skilled jobs that were outsourced. You know, truckers. Truckers are going to be replaced. Turns out, actually, an autonomous car is still pretty hard, but you know, a lot of white-collar jobs look threatened by AI now. Um, and if you look at something like GPT-4, which is the successor to ChatGPT. So if people have interacted with ChatGPT, they may not be interacting with really what is the state of the art right now. And GPT-4 has human-level performance across a whole wide range of tests at the SAT, the GRE, the bar exam. I can't do every single thing a person can do online as well as a person, but it's it's not that bad. It's pretty good. I, um, I like... I'm not satisfied with the podcast, so I also have a sub stack and I just plugged into ChatGBT3, uh, you know, right? Talk to me about AI and nuclear weapons. And it was better than anything I could have written. It took it 15 seconds and I posted it up as my post. And then at the end said, by the way, I didn't write this. It was, And I got e more emails on that post than anybody else saying, did ChatGBT really write this? Because the reason that AI is in the political discourse is because pundits are going to go extinct. Right. What, what's our unique value? We digest information and we process it. And that's and exactly it, what these large language models do. And it will do. be a better world. 
Well, they won't get the puns, David, as you know. <laughs> You know, it's 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 our yeah, jokes, it's our even, dad jokes, and our movie references that make us special. Yeah, so that's um, that's true. But but think tanks also completely. Yeah. But then we have to figure out what our value is. Well, I have I have a basic question because um, I gave up computer programming when I was working on Fortran back in the uh, early '80s and realized you know I'd much rather play the video game than write it. Um, how are you defining AI? I mean, it must be a fundamental thing in your work. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about sort of sentience, right? At what point do these, uh, uh, programs take on something unique that heretofore has been associated with human beings, but what definition do you use to draw the barriers for what you're talking about versus, you know, large data or, um, you know, I, I, I am my movie references and everybody says, oh, AI like war games and war games is not an AI program. It's just a really basic program. So where are you drawing the line on these things? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you first, there is this sociological phenomenon where quote unquote AI is often the thing that hasn't been built yet. And then once people make it, they go, oh, well, that's, that's just a computer program. Um, and so there are lots of things today that we think of as computer programs, tax preparation software, you know, chess programs that once upon a time were considered AI. So there is kind of this like moving definition. Um, the definition that, that I like is thinking of AI as a field of study, to, uh, the field of study to build machines that are intelligent. Now, that, of course, begs the question of what is intelligence? And I think the best definition here is really a functional one, that intelligence is the ability to determine the best course of action to accomplish a goal in a given environment, which encompasses you know, both a goal and what is the particular context, which is really important when you think about then Intelligence, right? Somebody who can look at the bigger picture, see the context, that's also a key aspect to intelligence. You, you've just put your finger on, I think, what is my major agita when it comes to AI, because you use the word, what is the best course of action, right? And, and best is a, is a, can be a, okay, what's the most efficient? What is mm -hmm. the, going to be the numerically the most uh, dynamic outcome? But it's also a moral set set of right. codes, right? And so as we know, a lot of these programs are taking on the morality that is in the data that it's gobbling up and regurgitating, which is why you have programs that are either racist or sexist or, you know, whatever it happens to be. Uh, I'm not saying drones will go after, you know, one one gender or another, but it, isn't there an inherent moral component to that definition? And how, how do we begin to struggle with that? Well, I think that is. I think that's, a, I mean, first of all, the morality of how we're using those machines totally matters in the real world in terms of how we're going to employ them. But it is core, as you're pointing out, to this concept of what is intelligence. So if you have a system that it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of the caricature, right, of some AI. Well, it's, you know, boop, boop, boop. It's calculating the optimal thing to do this. And then you're like, okay, but that is some horrific ethical outcome. That's not intelligent. That's not seeing the bigger picture. That machines often really struggle with, and it's something that humans do well. And so, moving to machines that can also have that bigger picture is key. Well, and you know, I mean, first of all, there are many definitions of you know AI that are out there that people use, and everything from the Turing test, which people have heard about, where you know you can't tell whether or not you're having an exchange with a, a computer, to my favorite, which is the coffee making test, which is. Yeah. where AI has to enter your home 
figure out where you keep your coffee stuff and figure out how to make a cup of coffee in your house, um, which, you know, I think uh, I, I struggled with that this morning twice. I had to throw. Well, a cup, so you might you might not standard. qualify under that definition, um, but um, you know, it is such a broad field um, that it, it you know it it when you say I want to talk about AI, you could be talking about a hundred things, and so that that creates a problem. So let's narrow in a little bit on the defense AI. And I, I did mention a moment ago that the Department of Defense, and this was Kath Hicks who made the announcement, uh, talked about um, a focus that they are launching um, on autonomous systems. Um, and uh, I think the the effort is called, in real Defense Department terms, you know, replicator, which mm-hmm. you know doesn't sound as Exactly like Skynet, but the rest of it it's close. Does. It's close enough. It's, <laughs> if you were if you were if you were in Hollywood, they're going. Oh, I knew I should have called a replicator. Yeah, yeah. it rhymes with Terminator. It rhymes with Terminator, and but it's close enough, isn't it? I mean, how yeah. you know? I mean, if, uh, to me, one of the things, and I've been spending the past six months immersed in AI. But and, and by the way, I grew up at Bell Labs in the nineteen sixties and seventies. That's where my dad worked. And he was part of a bunch of people that were developing the technologies that ultimately became AI. So I feel, you know, like this is watching your, these your children, fault. children grown up. Well, no, it's their fault, but but it's very, very <laughs> interesting to watch what watch what they've become. And one of the things that worries me the most, and it it's tangentially related to John's question a moment ago, is not all the stuff of AI, but it's the stuff that uses the word autonomous, particularly when the word autonomous and weapon system are used in the same phrase. Um, do you share that concern? I do. I do. I think that um, autonomous weapons that would go out on the battlefield and find their own targets and then attack them without any other human intervention or decision-making raise really profound questions about the role of humans in warfare, and are we comfortable ceding those life and death decisions to machines? I think one of the things that's really challenging here is that technology is far outstripping the pace of any kind of international diplomacy. The U.S. Defense Department has been pretty proactive in terms of its own policies. They had an update to their internal policy last year on autonomous weapons. But if you look at what's going on in Ukraine, we have not seen evidence of autonomous weapons deployed yet in Ukraine, but there's a lot of things that come pretty close to that line, and we may not be far away from seeing them actually used. Yeah, and I mean, to just to give people who are listening an, uh, who, uh, an, an, a, a sample of what they're thinking, for a long time, for example, they've been thinking about swarms, where you could send in multiple, say, drones that talk to each other, had a long list of targets. Um, it, once a target is hit, they move on to the next target. Once some of the drones are hit, they assume new roles. Um, uh, and not only does this pose the Skynet kind of worries that, that people have, um, but it, there's this other ethical question underneath it, which is rich nations will have the ability to go to war without putting people at risk. 
and poor nations won't. And 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 it sort of changes the playing field um, uh, in some fundamental ways. How do you feel about that? Well, I think there's actually two assumptions implicit in, in that statement you made that I don't think I agree with. I don't. I think they're they're common, but I don't think they're actually true. One is that rich nations will benefit more than poor nations. And I think the reality is that we see with things like drones and AI that it proliferates so rapidly and the costs to entry are so low that it, it's relatively leveling the playing field. It's not like some stealth bomber that's very expensive and hard to build and you need a lot of technology. You can go online and find trained neural networks you could download for free. Quadcopter costs a couple hundred bucks, and you've got civilians putting this together out on the battlefield in Ukraine and using them. So the barriers to entry are pretty low. And then I think the assumption that then there's, there won't be people on the battlefield, I think it's unlikely to bear out that there'll still be reasons to have people forward on the battlefield. It may be that the, the actual you know, edge of combat is more roboticized, but there's part of a long trend towards missiles and aircraft and greater standoff. But at the end of the day, it's still people killing people, probably just with robots in the future. So does that make you happy, John? Does I mean, well, I I mean, both both it confirms my worst fears, but also makes me happy because there's a great Star Trek episode about this where uh, two planets have evolved to the point where they no longer actually engage in the conflict. They just push a button and say, "Okay, 147,000 people have been killed, and those people have to voluntarily go into the chamber." Because if they don't, then the real missiles start to fly. And, you know, of course, Kirk says, no, you got to actually fight your wars with real weapons. This is how it's supposed to be. Um, you know, it, I realize now my entire misspent youth wasn't misspent because I've digested all of this crazy science fiction. And that, of course, is the lens through which many people are seeing these complicated issues. And it, even in government, I would talk with people in the White House when the, we would have the technical people come in and brief us on the, the newest advance in swarm or lethal autonomy. And we would turn to each other and be like, that guy's straight out of central casting. You can see the sparkle in his eyes and he's waiting for the machine to become. And I think that's part of the challenge we're wrestling with here, Paul. And you mentioned this about the diplomacy is lagging behind. Part of the challenge here is there are limits to what countries can do. There are limits to what the United States working with allies and even adversaries can do because this technology is proliferating. Um, and it's one of the reasons I'm more worried about this in some ways than I am nuclear, although, of course, you know, my day job is nuclear. My, my weekends are spent obsessing about this stuff, um, is uh, this is going to be much more widely spread. And there'll be both really positive aspects to it. You're going to identify diseases and uh, be able to improve literacy and uh, food, uh, um, agricultural uh, growth, you know, uh, adapting to new environments will be remarkably fast. But then you're also going to have these risks. And I think the challenge for me is not to focus on the big existential singularity where everything dies, right? It's how does this stuff begin to migrate? Because even in the United States or in Russia or in China, no leader is going to say it'd be a really good idea to match up our nuclear weapons with uh, something we don't understand in AI. But how do we begin to think about this migration problem, right? Remember, Skynet wasn't launched in the movies as, okay, take over all the weapons. It began to think for itself and build its own, build out. And so are, are we understanding that problem enough? Um, it, in, the, in some of the few experts I've talked to, including yourself, we don't really know how these programs themselves do what they do. 
And we do know that they can write some of their own code. And so how do we begin to wrap our head around that challenge? Well, the, the opacity of these systems and just our inability to really understand how the most state-of-the-art AI systems are functioning is a real problem. And it's coupled with the fact that one of the things that we've been seeing in the field of AI is as we level up to larger systems, so as AI researchers take you know, some neural network and then they train a new one that's bigger, it has more data, more computing hardware, that there are often these emergent capabilities that at a lower level, it can do something simple like generate text. And then at a higher level, we need basically the same underlying structure, but it's just scaled up. All of a sudden now, it can play chess, and it can, it can have some crude understanding of concepts, and it can do math. And that sort of raises these challenging questions about, like, when we keep scaling up, what can it do? One of the things that we saw with um, current large language models is they can do some basic scientific discovery. So researchers at Carnegie Mellon found that GPT-4 could come up with plans to synthesize chemical compounds including chemical weapons. Now, it's just a language model, so just as knowledge just conveys information, but they did an experiment where they basically, um, you know, pretended they didn't, they didn't directly make chemical weapons, but they, that it had the ability to access a remote cloud lab. So a remote cloud um, facility that you could access and send in code to do chemistry experiments, and that this language model, when given some basic directions, could write the code that could then be used to synthesize chemical weapons. And that, like, no one designed it to do that. That just that would emerge inside the model. And so I think it's a real problem when we think about, we don't even know going forward, what are these things going to be able to do, which we've got to be able to understand to figure out then how do we manage those risks. Yeah. So David, I, I feel much better now because I am convinced we're all going to die. Like that, that just pushed me over the edge. Excellent. Excellent. That's why we're here each and every week to make John feel worse. Although Counter I suspect, therapy. Although I, I suspect Paul listening to you and, and thinking, oh, this guy was the top nuke guy in the Obama White House and he was thinking about Star Wars the whole time. It's probably. Star Trek. Star, don't, star, don't, see, sorry, David, sorry, sorry, mix, sorry, sorry. Yeah, no, not quite nerdy <laughs> enough. But. Um, uh, <laughs> Um, with regard to this, I want to go back to a, a point you made uh, that, again, picks up off of something that John was just talking about, because we don't have the diplomats. Frankly, and you can talk about this to the extent to which you like, we don't have enough senior officials who understand this stuff to even have a useful conversation about it. I mean, that's one of the, the gating issues. There was a commission couple of years ago, uh, run by uh, Eric Schmidt and Bob Work, where they said, we need to set up an academy of AI to train people here in Washington um, uh, uh, to do this. Um, although, you know, half the people here don't believe the earth is round or that climate change is happening. So, you know, that may prove to be difficult. But, you know, we get past that. And, you know, having a sensible international conversation about this becomes more difficult. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you what worries one in this scenario is that, as has happened with almost all technologies, little black holes emerge in the international system where people say, we can profit from having the lowest standards. We can profit from, you know, uh, letting people do whatever they want here. 
And, you know, the, the, the question is, and, and, and by the way, you know, the, the AI arms race is underway. I'm, you know, you know, both Saudis and the Emiratis have just bought up hundreds of NVIDIA chips. And while you say it's cheap to do this stuff, that that costs hundreds of millions of dollars, right? I think each NVIDIA chip is thirty to forty thousand dollars now, um, uh, because to do to build big models, you need computational power, and which is a, a, a you know a gating um, need, uh, and and you also need a lot of energy, and so there are some places in the world like that um, that might have an advantage. Uh, but might not want to play by the same standards we play by. Um, and and while what you've said keeps John awake at night, this keeps me awake at night. Does it keep you awake at night? I think this is actually the core governance question, exactly what you're highlighting, which is how do we manage the proliferation of this technology, which is very powerful, it's very dual use. How do we ensure that it's used in a way that's safe but the, the hook here, I think where I do think there is hope, is in this hardware that you're talking about. That to train the most advanced AI systems requires, at, right now, about tens of thousands of the most advanced chips, which are made right now, one place in the world, in Taiwan. Uh, they rely on equipment from the United States, Japan, and the Netherlands. So there actually is a tightly controlled supply chain at the hardware level that we've already seen the U.S. government get involved in export controls on. And so I think that actually building on this towards um, putting in place some infrastructure to govern the computing hardware, where are these chips going, tracking them, who's getting them, the cloud computing infrastructure, how is it being used, is it going to be used in ways that are safe by actors that are going to comply with safety standards, is a way to build up a regulatory framework that can manage proliferation and make sure that the people that are using these models and training the most advanced ones are law-abiding actors that are going to do so in a way that's safe. And I think that there's, we have to move quickly, um, but I do think that there's some potential here to have successful international governance. So, John, before we go, but before we go on to the next question, this is where we normally take a break and say uh, thanks to everybody who's listening to this who's in the general public, and we're grateful that you have come and listened to it. And if you want to listen to the whole podcast, you should become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, pay five bucks a month. We do lots and lots of podcasts here, so you get lots and lots of bonus content for not very much money. Um, and, you know, you're here in a discussion about whether or not, you know, the world is going to end soon. And you probably want to know the answer to that question. And so $5 a month, you know, gets you there. So if you're not a member, go become one. If you are a member, uh, stand by. We'll be back in one moment. 